And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe in a system of rotating other globes, big and small. Do you know they found out, and this is really, really kind of whacking them out, that of all the solar systems we've now found with Kepler and TESS and the ground-based observatories and ultimately uh, uh, Webb, Ultimately, it looks like this solar system is unique. Let me say that again. In a solar system-rich environment, the galaxy, the Milky Way, with something like a trillion suns, and we now know that every one of those has at least one or two planets. That's the extrapolation from the statistics of the Kepler and TESS missions which are the space telescopes which are looking and cataloging extrasolar planets orbiting stars thousands of light years away. In all of those thousands and thousands of star systems where planets enjoin orbits around their parent star, the configuration of this solar system is unique. Let me say it again for all you Copernicanites out there. The solar system by modern 21st century astronomical science, the best that we've got, is unique. And this is a real problem for the theorists, the mainstream astrophysicists, the cosmologists, the planetary scientists, all those people who have spent their lives trying to figure out, you know, how mediocre we are, meaning how much this environment is replicated all across this galaxy and all the other galaxies, I mean trillions. And now, out of thousands that have been probed in detail, and many thousands more that are kind of waiting in the wings to be tabulated through the algorithms and programs that are being used by all these professionals to tabulate extrasolar planetary systems, we're it. We're unique. I mean, this is so outrageous and should be, you know, Hollywood sign high headlines. Because how many times in school, how many times in reading history, how many times in learning science did you learn, oh, the Earth is an average planet in an average solar system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet that does not seem to be the case. Which, of course, raises some really interesting questions that I'm hoping to get into tonight with my guests, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert. And believe me, the question and answer to this little now known fact, there are no such things as alternative facts in astronomy, it either is there or it's not, the answer to why we are unique Maybe some of you will be a bit uncomfortable as we describe and explain and elucidate the potential reasons for our uniqueness. Remember, we've been sold for the last hundred years or more that we're just average. Turns out we're not. Scientifically, we're not. Now, what does that do to, well, let's not, you know, leave it on the cutting room floor. Uh, for you who are new to the show, uh, we have a feature called Radio with Pictures, which allows you to actually follow along with some of the links 
and imagery and other things that are posted that are relevant to the show. And of course, you can always access them uh, freely during the replay of all the archive shows from Club 19.5. And most people have a lot more time when they're not listening to the show. Uh, there are some things you're going to want to look at right away, other things you can defer to a second or a third hearing, because these are, these are admittedly very densely packed programs. Very admittedly. Okay, so if you're new to the show, you go to the homepage, which is theothersideofmidnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which is very near the top, the hyperdimensional reason why everything is hitting the fan right now with Levine and Lambert as my guests tonight. So you're now going to hit that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. You click on my name. It's right under to listen to the show. Click on Richard. That will take you to the section of Radio with Pictures where we have items with images and links and all that good stuff. First item tonight, of course, is we're going to update again the Webb telescope. Uh, as you know, in three days, this is Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the 12th of July, the Webb telescope people are planning to release their first tranche of stunning in-depth color imagery taken by the world's unequivocally largest space telescope, which has a mirror, primary mirror, which collects the light uh, and infrared energy is light, as are gamma rays. They are light, too, just of a very short and high-energy wavelength. Anyway, the Webb telescope will collect its light with a 21-inch, 21, I keep doing that, 21-foot wide mirror. See, every time I say that, I think of the 200-inch, which is 16 feet, so my mind kind of goes weird sometimes. Anyway, um, that mirror has produced an image which we have assembled tonight, which is sitting right there as part of item number one. This is a mosaic of 72 little thumbnail postage stamp size pictures taken by the fine guidance sensor of the Webb telescope. This is the gadget which literally will keep Webb pointed at a particular field of, of stars and galaxies for hundreds or thousands of hours, if necessary, from its halo orbit at the L2 point, about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the Sun. And this image, these 72 images, were taken over a span of 32 days, both numbers of which are not accidental. I mean, these people can't do anything in space without a ritual. And tonight we're going to talk about those numbers, 32 and 72, and how they relate to the overall theme of uh, what we're going to explore tonight, which, why is everything happening at once, and why is all kinds of weird, bad stuff happening? Why now? Why not, you know, long time ago? Why not wait? Why not in a thousand years? Anyway, that's part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, item number two, which kind of plays into this in a way, Last year, the UN came out with a report which really, as the headline says, should have all of us really terrified because the biggest single impediment to continued life on Earth is the inexorable turning the heat up on the frog in the pot on the stove so that he and or she does not know 
They are being boiled to death until it happens. That's the, what's going on with the climate of the planet. It is warming up. Every measure, it is warming up. Um, and that report, of course, is a very important milestone because it basically says that we've got between now and the next 10, maybe 15 years to do something really significant or we will be into what with Venus would be called the runaway greenhouse mode. And we'll take the time some night to describe all that. So um, I try not on this show to present problems that do not have concomitant potential resolutions. And, you know, a lot of people have talked for a long, long time about uh, uh, global warming, about the effects of climate change. This now, this development I'm going to relate in the next few minutes, links item number one and item number three. Because as part of the web telescope deployment, you also know that Waiting in the Wings is the uh, first unmanned mission back to the moon called Capstone uh, in a very long time. It is following a very lengthy, leisurely, um, neo-rectilinear orbit, which will take it almost a million miles beyond the moon and then swing it back. And you can see that in the illustration I had for the uh, capstone mission in last night's show. But this is all part of a much larger matrix because capstone is a forerunner for the Gateway Lunar Space Station, which will orbit the moon in this very peculiar orbit, which is basically comes within a thousand miles of the lunar south pole and within 43,500 miles of the lunar north pole. So if you look at the moon on a, on a full moon night, you can imagine that this, um, this mythical orbit, this invisible orbit of the uh, capstone mission and then the gateway space station in a couple of years will basically be standing straight up when you look at a full moon uh, on the meridian any night with the closest point being about halfway um, from the center of the moon above the south pole that's about a thousand miles since the diameter of the moon is about two thousand and then the orbit will be a very long ellipse that will take them seven days to track from the low point thousand miles over the moon to the low point again thousand miles over the moon over the south pole seven days seven tetrahedral days gosh i wonder who figured that one out anyway that's all part of a larger matrix which is the artemis missions which are currently uh, uh being prepped for the the real mission the first unmanned sls orion uh, european uh, um, service module mission sometime in late august maybe early september which will test the entire infrastructure minus gateway of taking americans men and women back to the moon for an eventual landing in uh, 2025 i think that's the new target date because they they can't make the 2024 target date too many problems too little money etc 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 familiar song but it's all hinging on the success of capstone and so that set of missions opens up all kinds of interesting potentials because for an awful lot of people who basically say, well, what good is space flight? What good is space travel? Ignoring the fact of SpaceX and, and Starlink and GPS and you know um, inventories of crops, weather satellites and incredible infrastructure uh, in space, which is minding you know, social media 
allowing networks to you know transmit messages anywhere on the planet in uh, milliseconds all of that would not be occurring without space so that takes us to item number three MIT this week announced after some very interesting study that they've come to the same conclusion that I have and a number of other independent uh, researchers namely that the global warming problem for the planet cannot be solved by staying on the planet, that the ideal place to solve the global warming climate change model of increasing temperatures and increasing, increasing melting of ice and CO2 and the more carbon into the atmosphere released from underground uh, clathrate sinks, all of that bad stuff. The simple way to solve the problem is to externally cool the Earth. If the Earth is trapping too much heat, the answer, like any cook in the kitchen knows, is to turn down the heat on the stove so that you don't boil dinner. Well, up until this MIT study, apparently we were kind of lone voices in the wilderness because I've been saying for years that the ultimate answer to uh, global climate change is not reducing carbon emissions because you can't. You know, people need to eat, people need to live, people need to cook, people need energy. And at the moment, we're stuck on the fossil fuel loop. So what is the way out of the box? Well, MIT this week announced, that's item number three, that the way out of the box is to basically blow a lot of space bubbles in a very large, and I mean really very large spacecraft, flimsy, tethered together with wire in space and zero gravity and if you blow enough bubbles and you do the proper things to them they can be interposed between the earth and the sun and they can act like a pair of polaroid sunglasses they can basically cut down the energy that the earth intercepts from the sun which of course will cool it which means the trapping of heat will turn from a bad thing to a good thing because it gives you a margin of reserve, kind of like putting an extra blanket on in the middle of a three-dog night. That's an arcane reference you need to look up. Okay, that's that's homework for the audience. What's a three-dog night? And I don't mean just the song. Anyway, so they are thinking of doing this. This idea actually came from a guy named Robert Angel, who was a uh, brilliant optician uh, working in Arizona at the University of Arizona, who produced some of the most amazing uh, telescopes on Earth, creating big, big, big mirrors for big, big, big telescopes, much bigger than the 200-inch on Mount Palomar. And then one day, Robert Angel apparently was thinking how to tackle the global warming problem, and he realized that if he could create optical technology in space, you could basically reflect away or absorb the energy of the sun that you didn't want to hit the earth and all it would take would be building a very 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 large megastructure or several in space the calculation which if you go to that link to mit there's all the data you'd want to know at that link they're talking about building a structure in space roughly the size of the area of brazil I'll say it again. They're talking about building in zero gravity a megastructure in space that ultimately would have the physical size, the dimensions of the nation 
of Brazil. And you would position it between the Earth and the Sun. Well, is there a kind of a stable region of space between the Earth and the Sun where this object, which would be built obviously with robots and uh, 3D CAD and all that other really cool stuff, that you could build it in space where it would stay between the Earth and the Sun? And the answer is yes. It's called the L1 position. If Hubble, uh, Hubble, if Webb is at the L2 position, a million miles behind the Earth, the L1 position is about a million miles in front of the Earth, between the Earth and the Sun. And if you build this super, super big mega structure of literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of bubbles blown out of materials that you mine in space so you don't have to lift them up and out of a gravity field and all that stuff, you can create basically a pair of Polaroid sunglasses in space, in orbit a million miles away from Earth toward the sun, and it will allow you in real time to modulate up and down very precisely the amount of energy that is transmitted through this mega lens. You can see a kind of an illustration of what it might look like there as it uh, occludes part of the edge of the sun's disk. And it's all with no impact on the Earth itself. Because as with any system of engineering on this scale, feedback loops would be really important. You don't want to, you know, block enough sunlight from the Earth to cause an ice age. And you certainly don't want to block too little so that we continue with the global warming, which is going to ultimately do us all in. So it's a happy medium, but it's all eminently controllable. And all it takes is some major mature infrastructure in space to carry this out. Which brings us back to SLS, Artemis, returning to the moon, uh, moon base. I mean, you could use an O'Neill system. You could basically mine the moon for the materials and slingshot it to the L1 position by means of a um, accelerator, a linear rail accelerator on the moon. Uh, the design plans are out there. Just Google them. So if we really open space up in a big industrial way, not only do all the other little problems of living in space and you know, exploring the moon and creating materials that are uniquely uh, adapted to their space uh, origins, meaning materials and electronics and gadgets that cannot be made on Earth, but it turns out you literally can modulate the entire climate of the Earth with current technology. All it requires is a bit more scale, and that's just money. Think of how much money the planet will save by not having to constantly uh, confront these superstorms, these super fires, all of the uh, ancillary things that come along with global warming. Okay, um, that feeds directly into my conversation tonight with my guest because as you, as you may have noted in the promo that I wrote, there's a whole bunch of things that are basically occurring right now on the planet. And all of them have, one way or another, their solution with either infrastructure in space or actually um, thinking about what happens to planetary objects and other large 
masses which orbit in space and orbit along with us. So without further ado, let me introduce my uh, first guest of the evening. Rick Levine is a professional astrologer, has been since 1976. He has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick once wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years delivered by the Internet to literally millions of readers per day through tarot.com. He his expanded daily planet pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer dot. He's the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. And in 2018, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamurti Institute of Astrology in India. On a recent lecture tour of Istanbul, Rick was awarded the coveted Fomalat Award for Astrological Excellence by the Turkish School of Astrology. And you can start out, Rick, by telling everybody what is Fomalat. Well, it's actually Fomalhat. And oh. Fomalhat is one of the four Babylonian watchers. The Babylonians had four stars, one for each season. Um, and the United States or the international astrology community um, every four years gives out an award called the Regulus Award. Regulus is one of the four watchers. So Turkey responded a few years ago and began giving out this national award based upon, it's just a recognition of an international astrologer who comes to their country and blows everyone's mind. That was me. So are these the stars <laughs> that are closest to the four points? No. No, um, well, they're... It's a combination of closest and brightest. They're not necessarily the closest. They're the, they're easy to find, um, and, um, do, do, and, and do, do they the, roughly mark the solstices and the equinoxes? That's fine. No, they actually roughly mark the in between points, the cross corners, oh, oh, roughly, roughly. But they're not exact. But there is, I mean, the watcher of the summer um, is Regulus. And it's at one degree of Virgo, which is basically um, two-thirds of the way through the summer. And this goes by astrological uh, cycles that are not sidereal, that are something else. And Well, the actual Ulfic stars are sidereal because, because um, sidereal means, as you know, of the stars. It means stars. So, yeah, when one is locating... Um, you know, a, a star, it by nature is sidereal. However, it gets a little bit tricky as to what what grid we map it on. And That's, that was where I was going because Regulus is the bright star in Leo. And well, I, actually, and I, actually, Richard, it was up until a few years ago at 29 degrees of Leo, but it precessed um, into uh, in, into Virgo because. The Earth wobbles, as you know, and the precession is one degree every 72 years, which means that the fixed stars don't really appear fixed against the seasons. 
And so that was a big deal when, when astrologers had to realize that uh, that these fixed stars, uh, Regulus most recently, has in fact, from the Earth's point of view, changed signs, but that's just because of the wobble of the Earth. And the way that it's kind of accounting. So let's 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 go back to the big picture, okay? In in some of the notes you sent me, you had yeah. a very good idea, because the foundation of astrology as a science, as a hyperdimensional science, yes. rests on the idea that we are within wheels, within wheels, within wheels. That all of these masses whirling around us and we whirling around them have a measurable scientific effect in the field. Uh, the Russians call it the torsion field. The West called it the ether for many, many decades until they kind of abolished it by fiat. Uh, the science really says there's, a, yeah. there's an ether. So mm -hmm. we're looking at how this field, this matrix, this, this gossamer web that we're all stuck in as 3D conscious beings, how it is modulated ratcheted up and down changes over time with all of these individual cycles both individually and then all together like this huge yeah. melange of a whole orchestra all blaring its own notes and its overtones and undertones and all that so i thought it was a really good idea when you said why don't we start by talking about the bodies we're referring to and the mm -hmm. cycles that they take us through and then how that affects life as opposed to Sagan's perception that it doesn't, life on planet mm -hmm. Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there are um, things that we know, and then there are things that we don't know. Um, if I said, can you name all the countries in the world and their capitals, you'd probably go, I don't think I know all that. But you know that you don't know that. The problem comes when we don't know what we don't oh, know. Oh, this is, this is your Rumsfeld problem. Remember <laughs> when he said there are known unknowns? Oh, yeah, And then yeah, there are yeah, unknown yeah. unknowns? Well, okay, I hate to be compared to, to uh, <laughs> Rummy Dumsfeld, but, or whatever his name No, but Ronald, the right. fact of the matter is that there are cycles that we see. You know, we, we, uh, we're coming into a full moon in a couple of days, and and if you look up at the sky, you go, wow, that moon's big. I don't think it was that big a few days ago. And we kind of tune into that cycle of the new moon to the full moon. Um, the seasons, you know, right now in the northern hemisphere, we're in the season of the summer. And we know that. And we know that every year there are four seasons. This is a cycle we see. However, these high-frequency meaning cycles that happen every month or every year, astrologically are not the things that we're talking about here. We're talking about the cycles that you don't see unless someone points them out to you. And then you go, oh my God, I never noticed that. You know, uh, there, there's a concept, you know, like, like if something is hermetically sealed, right? You, you know what that means? 
Well, it sounds like it goes back to Hermes. I'm quite wondering how he got into the vacuum business, but go ahead. Ah, okay. No, that's 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 great because normally hermetically sealed means that it is sealed to so tightly that there's no way in and no way out. Right. Whether it's a vacuum or a pressure or just for cleanliness, hermetically sealed means that it is a complete seal. However, um, <laughs> Hermes, as the keeper of the secrets, going back to, you know, Thoth or Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the thrice great back in, in the Egypt period of time. No ego there. <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. Um, but the thing about, about something that's hermetically sealed, a disk drive, you know, is hermetically sealed. But if you I'll, know I'll, the I'll, secret. I'll tell you what, hang on, because we're at the bottom of the hour. And I just okay. could not resist playing this song. This is Vera Lynn from the 1940s. In honor of MIT, guys, pay attention. We need those bubbles. Pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high, nearly reach the sky. Like my dreams, they fade and die. Fortune's always hiding. I've looked everywhere. I'm forever blowing bubbles. The site of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. 8 cents an episode, 2.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. This is a blast from the past, very famous singer in the 1940s, Vera Lynn. I'm forever blowing bubbles. MIT, pay attention. You could have a theme song. The idea is so mind-bogglingly simple. It's brilliant. It's elegant. It's classic. It can work. All we need now is a little money. Forever 
tell Rick as we fade away with Vera Lynn in the background blowing her bubbles into the L1 position, let's go back to planetary and cosmic cycles. So we were talking about Hermes. Yes. And and the, the thing is that the secret traditions all have something in common, and that is two people can look at the same thing and see something completely different. And the tradition has to be passed along by an initiate secret communication. And so a hermetically sealed uh, chamber is one that there is a way in or out, but you don't know what it is unless you know the secret. Hmm. Unless you know what's invisible, otherwise it's otherwise you miss it. I mean, this goes back to the Pythagorean order, you know, the secret order, that in that unless you were in the order, you didn't see the same things that other people who were in the secret order saw. Two people could look at a tree, and one of them can see that the tree is this magic miracle of the universe, and the other one can say the tree's in the way. <laughs> yes, about to fall on the house during the next hurricane. Right. So the point here is that Astrologically, there are cycles that we don't see unless someone points them out to us. And then we go, holy crap, I had no idea. Okay, for us. Because once you see them, you can't unsee them. For us to see a cycle, it can be something visible like the moon. You look at the moon, every night is 13 degrees different. It waxes and wanes, gets bigger and smaller. It moves across the sky. So that cycle is very obvious. Very obvious because it falls within a range of repeatability, and that's how we measure cycles. That's how science measures cycles. It measures a frequency by measuring the distance or the time between two peaks in a wave, and then that becomes a measurable item that they can then predict into the future. The but question becomes, go ahead. Well, astrology is linked, at least as my understanding, limited though it may be, to the visible movements of these objects, which the astrologers say impact, change, influence, shape life on Earth. And so you can correlate changes in people's lives or society's lives or nations' lives with these visible cycles. But exactly, what, but, except but, they're not always visible. Uh, because, that, I'm going there next. What okay, if, I'll be quiet. What, what <laughs> if um, there are things going on in the dark out there that are cyclic that are basically modulating the physics, but the only way you're going to detect them is by looking at the at the victim. I'm sorry, the uh, the sheep. I'm I'm sorry, the 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 people, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, who are affected, and you can only <laughs> measure the invisible by the visible effect on this population. But given the fact that there's so many things working to tug people into all kinds of cycles and behavior and repetitive motions. How do you isolate ah, something the many, that's invisible? The body problem. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly the problem. It's you, you can't isolate them, and this is really why. Although many people who practice astrology would call it a science, it's why it's difficult for it to make that leap into science 
because you can't take the active ingredient out and just measure it. It is always impacted by everything else in the field, as you alluded to in your in your introduction. Yeah, I think that was a very, you know, well said introduction. I think you called it a gossamer web. You know, if a fly lands on a spider web, everything in the web vibrates. Mm-hmm. Well, but don't we have in 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 physics and mathematics something called the uh oh, I'm trying to think of the the algorithm that's used to separate multiple frequencies. Uh and I had it a moment ago and Fourier and Fourier that. transform. Thank you. Thank yes. you. My god, I you know French. <clears throat> Yeah, this was a French mathematician who figured yeah. out that if you have a cycle <clears throat> that's composed of a bunch of subcycles, that you can't see the subcycles, but there's a mathematical way to tease to out ex- yes. the subcycles yes. from the bigger cycle if you have enough information. And Richard, it's my contention that at some day, we have not reached that day yet. There will be some mathematician so duly interested in astrology that this person will apply some form, some type, some 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 you know um, some uh, uh, you know kind of next stage of Fourier transforms to these very very low frequencies that are seen in astrology. It, it, there, it's not there now, but yes, absolutely. But it could be there if someone cared, which is why I would suggest yes. in the in the mode of Danny Deutsch, who's a big ad guy in New York, that there there needs to be a branding conversation about astrology. I think it needs to be known as hyperdimensional astrology, so people get the idea that these cycles are bringing information and energy in from beyond 3D reality, and therefore the standard physics explanation, or Sagan saying that the obstetrician exerts more force on the baby than the planet configurations when it's born, is really crapola because you're talking apples and oranges and kumquats. That's right. That's that's right. That's right. And there is a Newtonian measurement in which Pluto exerts more force than the doctor, and it's basically called Newton called it gravitational inertia. Okay. And it's a ta- was a, it's a tangential uh, um, force that. But regardless of all that, the fact is that we can actually take these individual cycles. And we can tweeze them out. We can we can see them once we are, are attuned to them. Here's here's the problem: is if if science is instrumenting the electromagnetic frequency and going from from um, frequencies that are um, hundreds and hundreds of trillions of cycles every second to um, cycles that are maybe 10, 20, 30, 60 cycles a second, you know, at, at the very long wave end of the spectrum. In each of these cases, there has to be, the instrumentation has to measure the repeatable frequency, just like a musical note. You hear a musical note like like concert pitch A, which is 440 cycles a second. 
And so we have a, a meter that can measure the repeatability of this um, of, of, of something, of a, of, of a waveform 440 times every second. If it measures 443 times in a second, that note will be sharp. It won't fit in. Something will sound wrong. The question is, how do you create an instrument that will measure the cycle of Pluto because Pluto is approximately a 248-year cycle. We could say 250. It rounds off fine. Hmm. What that means is we set our meter and we go beat, and then we have to wait 250 years for the next beat to go to the end of one cycle. Yeah, you basically Go ahead. You basically leave a wake-up call for 250 years later. <laughs> right, right. But, but, but that's why we don't have these cycles instrumented is because we can't create the repeatability on such low frequencies. You know, there is a whole field of science that is waiting to be born. Yes, having there, do, there's several. Having, well, I'm, yes. I'm thinking in terms of astrological you know predilections which is the astrology of other star systems and lo and behold when Nikolai uh, Nicholas Kozarev the Soviet scientist who pioneered so much of the 1950s work on torsion fields he actually put a detector at the focal point of the Polkovo observatory in the Crimea for you know, following the geopolitics, um, at the uh, at the uh, focal point of the 50-inch telescope, and he was able to detect torsion field vibrations from other star systems. The weird part is that he got three locations on the sky for where these measurements kind of resonated. One where the optical position of the star currently was, which is to be expected. Yes. One in the past where the star had been in its motion across the sky over a very long period of time. It's called proper motion. And then a third in a future position along that line of proper motion where it would be sometime in the future. And this, of course, completely screws up three-dimensional ideas of what's going on and automatically invokes a higher dimensional reality that astrologers, I don't think, are quite there yet. No, I don't think so either. But they so need either. to be. Well, I think that they're getting there and there's a lot of work. You know, I mean, there's more interest in astrology on many different levels than there ever has been before. But, you know, there are some things that have worked their way into the popular culture, and one of them is based upon the cycle of the planet Saturn. Okay. And Saturn, as the most outwardly visible, that means without a telescope, uh, the naked eye can see. If one attunes to the movement of Saturn, one can see that Saturn is just under a 30-year cycle, 29 and a half years uh, approximately. And, um, and there have been books written by non-astrologers about <laughs> our attunement to the rhythm of Saturn 
without even knowing that there was an attunement. The book I'm talking about came out in the late 1960s by a woman um, named Gail Sheehy. Oh, And she yes, wrote yes. a book called Passages. Right, right. And in this book, amongst other things, she said that there were there were gateways in our lives where things happened and it didn't matter where we lived on the planet or what our cultural or what our belief system was, we kind of went through similar transitions around certain periods of our life. And one of them was around the age of 29, 30. In fact, this is so built into our culture, we have a concept that you don't trust, if you're under 30, you don't trust anyone over 30. <laughs> and if you're over 30, it doesn't matter how precocious or mature someone is who's under 30, they're just a kid. Mm -hmm. And you see, the thing is that at age 30 or 29 and a half, Saturn completes one cycle. It's like your first birthday. Okay, first <laughs> dumb question. Why no. Saturn? I mean, it's just by chance that Earth eyes and optics and the brightness of things make Saturn the last visible outpost of the solar system. When you get a telescope, you find there's Uranus out there and there's Neptune and there's Pluto and there's Charon. Oh, hell, there's, there's a half a million things that exactly. NASA tracks going so around So why, you know? why, other than just it's, it's the farthest out, why does Saturn seem to mark these real, and I call them nodal points, in people's lives? I think that's lives? a good word. Yeah. And and the word for people in astrology, they get confused by the word node um, because there is this point called the nodes of the moon. But the word node is simply a Latin word for not just like a, you know, uh, like like a, um, in, 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 in a tumor cell or in a cancer cell, um, there's a node, which is the knot, which is, or when you throw rocks in water and you see the ripples cross each other, they cross each other and they create points that don't move. Those are knots, those mm -hmm. are nodes. And so that's it's a great word to use. And, and I'm just picking Saturn out as an example. We could do the same thing with um, any of the slower moving planets, um, even Mars, Jupiter, um, we'll get to Uranus, Neptune, and Pl Uranus and Pluto in particular in a few minutes. Saturn is just such a good example because mythologically, Saturn represents exactly what it represents astrologically, meaning that that Saturn is the is, Saturn is Latin, um, you know, for Kronos, which is Greek. And Saturn is, in effect, Father Time. Saturn is the Grim Reaper. Saturn is, you know, is karma. Saturn is you get what you deserve. Saturn is the planet related to responsibility. And all this comes from the Greek and Roman mythologies of Kronos and of, you know, end of Saturn. And so what seems to happen is everyone around age 29, 30 go through a crisis and they go through a crisis of growing up, of leaving something of their childhood behind, of maybe making um, a decision of I'm going to do this in my life instead of that, even though they went to college to become an attorney at age 29 or 30, they discover Rock and roll. Yeah, but, all right, all right. I, I, we've all heard of Saturn return. Saturn return, meaning it makes that one orbit 
you know, 29, 20, 29 years. Well, after and that's born. all I'm saying is, is that once one begins to observe this previously invisible cycle, one but, sees that this why, is just like a season. But why isn't there a Jupiter return and a Mars there return? Is. And a Ve- there is. But why did there Saturn? Is. Why did Saturn get the, all the branding? Because it, it, it's like, why do we know? Um, you know, like a. Uh, why do we know the moon? You know, when, you know, when it is in opposition to the sun or in conjunction with the sun, rather than all the other planets, which also do a conjunction and opposition, it's because it's the most obvious. Well, why is Saturn, which actually is rather dim in the sky, why is it the most obvious for a Saturn return astrologically, whereas Jupiter, which is really bright and up there, you know, in the well, there is dawn. a Jupiter. There is a Jupiter return. I don't want to get distracted but on we, it. But, but we don't hear. Saying, wait, 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 we don't Richard, hear about Listen, it. listen. What you're saying is true. The fact of the matter is that everyone on the planet celebrates their solar return every year. Right. You know, so yeah, your, uh, so your, your birthday. What, we, yeah. But the point is uh, um, that when a planet returns, I say a planet, a sun, moon, or a planet, returns to where it was when you were born, astrologically, this is like the completion of a cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. And and there's nothing, there's there's nothing. I just want to know how did Saturn get the press and all the other guys. No one talks about their Jupiter return or their Mars return. Oh, and, in my circle, people do. Yeah, Absolutely. but in my circle, no, nobody. They well, may because, have heard of Saturn be, return. Be, because it's it's the same thing as why do people know about Mercury retrograde and not Mars retrograde, Venus retrograde, Jupiter retrograde. It's just because it's the one that caught on because it's the most obvious. I'm not so sure about that because planets orbiting inward toward the primary as opposed to outward mercury versus mars yeah. in the physics they're not they're not the same they're not mirror reciprocal they're not you know mirror images of each other that is true but any astrologer will tell you that a mars the thing about a mercury retrograde is that its rhythm it retrogrades about 3 times a year for about 3 weeks right and so its rhythm is observable Whereas Venus retrogrades once every year and a half, um, and 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 so it's not as noticeable. It fits. It doesn't. It doesn't fit into something that is like. It's like if you're driving a car going forty miles an hour, you screech on the brakes and throw it into reverse. You'll know that something changed. Right. And you compare that with being in an eighteen-wheeler truck just kind of going inches, just like rolling very slowly and then putting that into reverse. It's a huge amount of inertia and it'll have an effect, but sitting in the passenger seat, you won't know it Hmm. the way you would notice it in the change of speed, you know, of a faster planet like Mercury. But I also have this qualitative feeling that Mercury retrogrades really do screw up things and the others are much more subtle and in the noise of life, they can easily be overlooked. I think that that's, again, I think it's true for the same reason that I just said. If you're in a Porsche... So there is something qualitatively different between a Mercury retrograde and the others. 
because it has the most rapid change of speed. See, I'm wondering if it's that or if it's because the effect is greater because it's the closest to the sun. It has high angular momentum. Um, I think all of those are true, but Venus also is noticeable. Mars, when Mars goes, you see, when the, as I know you know, but most of the people out there do not, when a planet in its normal moving around the sun is closest to the Earth in its cycle, that's when it turns retrograde. Now, for the inner planets, Mercury and Venus... This does not mean the planets suddenly go backward around the sun in their orbits. It simply means that optically, optically, geometrically projected... apparent apparent motion. From movement of the Earth, yeah. For Venus and Mars, when they get close to Earth, they're between the Earth and the sun, so they appear as a conjunction, like a new moon. When the outer planets are close to Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, they're on the same side of the sun, but the Earth is in between, so they seem opposition like a full moon. Right. So there is something very dynamically different, as you just said, between the physics of an internal retrograde, Venus and Mars, and an external planet, meaning it's outside of the orbit of Earth, Mars out to, out, out, out to whatever to whatever the latest planet is that's been discovered. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but the point here is that, again, what we're talking about, Richard, are cycles that people don't notice until Hermes or someone points them out, tells them the secret, and once they see it, the more they see it, the more they see it, the more they build experience around it, and the more obvious it becomes to the point of like, oh my God, how could have I missed the fact that every two years when Mars turns retrograde for about um, for about 10 weeks, once every two years approximately, um, whether whether the wars on the planet are heat are, are become more obvious, or whether anger and there's just closer to feeling like war, um, you know, you begin to see it, and you begin to see the start of the major major wars. Historically, are often not always, but very often tied to a Mars retrograde. And so the point here is simply that there are cycles that we don't see, that we don't notice until we spend time noticing them. And because of the complexity of the solar system and all the planets, you know, in the gossamer, you know, spider web Mm -hmm. of everything, um, it's a bit overwhelming for people to jump in and to understand how how all this works. Now, there are some things that are absolutely simple to understand. And, and, and this is now not a retrograde we're going to talk about, but just talking about a new moon and a full moon. Whether you're an astrologer or not, most people acknowledge or agree, and especially if you have a friend who's an emergency room attendee, nurse, or doctor – they know, and I've checked this out so many times over the decades, it's crazy. When there's a full moon on a Friday or Saturday night, those are crazy nights. If a full moon falls on a Wednesday night, it may be a little bit busier in the emergency room, but it's not like it picking up on the wave of it being already a party night, and now it becomes crazier. See, so I, have, I have seen books that completely, you know, kick to the to the you know side of the road 
the idea there's full moons, hospital visits, emergency calls, all that, there's any correlation at all. It's like the, the, the jury is 50-50, and depending upon who you read and what data they've assembled, I mean, I have not found any good... Oh, I, I have a tremendous amount of information on that, and I would say that the people who deny it are people who, and unfortunately, there are so many people who call themselves skeptics who are not skeptics, they're just but disbelievers, I would and think, they'll make... Inf- but I would but think no, that there's a kind of vested interest on the part of police and fire and hospitals and emergency, you know, EMTs and all that. I, I they need to be aware of this, regardless are. of what Richard, the skeptics say. Richard, I have a friend who is an emergency physician who, who, who has told me time and again that when there is a full moon on a holiday or on a weekend, that they staff extra. That it's just common knowledge, regardless of what the skeptics might say. Then how, then, that that, point. then how do skeptics rule the roost? Because most people, when you say, is there a full moon correlation with these, you know, bad things? They'll say, well, no, it was, it was disproven years ago. Yeah, well, it's for the same reason why um, skeptics think that hyperdimensional physics and torsion fields and anything that's not, you know, within the realm of Newtonian mechanics. Yeah, is but crap. that's not in but, your face like a body count in an emergency room. You know, what was it that uh, Emily Dickinson said in one of her poetry? She'd rather believe in microscopes than miracles. In other words, it's right in your face. How come it isn't common knowledge, yeah, when the full... In other words, there really is still an argument, and it's almost like overwhelming evidence says there is a correlation. A few skeptics say there's none, and people don't believe their lying eyes. Yeah, well, look, I I totally agree with you here, and the fact of the matter is most mo- most scientists say that the idea that someone you know that that an astrologer can look at someone's horoscope, the the map of the planets at their birth, and can know anything about that person is crap. And I just kind of laugh because they haven't done it. I've been you know as as one of thousands and thousands of trained astrologers. Um, I, I mean, I've looked at, oh, I don't know, maybe eh, maybe 40,000 um, um, charts over my 50 years as an astrologer, something like that. I'm making that number up, but it'd probably be 30, 40,000. Um, and I always it's it's like taking a Polaroid picture of someone who's never seen a Polaroid camera and they go impossible, impossible. Oh my God, this is a miracle. But after doing that 20 or 30 or a thousand times, it would be a miracle if it didn't match. And my, my point here is that just because there is an absolute match between a person, their horoscope and, you know, and how they live their lives and who they are, that doesn't mean that scientists will ever see that because they already know that it's impossible. You know, um, Lavoisier, the first president of the French Academy of Sciences, who actually lost his head during the um, during the French Revolution, um, Lavoisier, when he was appointed the president of the French Academy of Sciences, basically the first order of business was he issued a statement, and the statement was very simple: rocks do not fall, stones do not fall from the sky because there are no stones in the sky to fall. Hmm. 
Now, the, the, this was a local um, conundrum at that time that we, we would call these meteors or meteorites if yeah. they hit the ground. Okay, we are and at the yet, top of the hour. I must cut you off. It's terrible. Okay. The clock is a, is a hard Perfect. task mistress. The clock is Saturn. It, it, is, <laughs> it is the, the wow. crew. Okay, we're going to go out at the top of the hour with the Ukrainian national anthem. There's a war going on. The very dedicated, very, very patriotic people are struggling to survive, and our hearts are with them. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll get back to Rick Levine and the cycles that run our lives shortly. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.